Good morning again. We are going to be in the book of Amos once again this morning. If you brought your Bible with you, I would encourage you to turn to Amos chapter 9. We're going to be reading the first four verses, uh, and then we will jump to verse 11 and finish out the chapter. Again, that's at Amos 9. If you didn't bring a Bible, the scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. So 15 years ago, around this exact time, I decided that uh, my girlfriend at the time needed to become my wife. And it was Cheryl, by the way, in case you're wondering. Uh, And since I had made that decision uh, and had thought about it a lot, prayed about it, um, made it as as, as wise of a decision as one could make at 20 years old, uh, I went to make the trek over to Cheryl's dad's apartment for that all-important, can I please marry your daughter conversation. Uh, Those of you who have had that conversation, you know how nerve-wracking it can be. Uh, It was indeed nerve-wracking. I honestly didn't know what he was going to say. Uh, So I went into the apartment. Uh, I remember sitting down on the couch while he was in his easy chair. Um, He was nice and relaxed. I was not. Uh, And I looked at him. George is his name. And I looked at George and I said, George, you probably know why I'm here. Uh, He looked back at me and he said, yeah, I do, but I need you to say it anyway. Um, And so I began to explain why I was there. uh, And uh, Immediately after I had gone through the explanation and he had started talking in response to that, not saying yes, but saying some things maybe we could work on, uh, I in particular could work on, uh, the phone rang. Uh, and he picked it up, and he had what felt like a 30-minute conversation with somebody on the other end of the phone. And so my stomach is turning, and I'm wondering, is, is this going to go like I thought it was going to? Uh, you know, am I going to, uh, to have to, to beg and plead? Um, anyway, he got off the phone. Uh, he, he gave me some more advice, but in the end, he said yes. His last word was yes. That was why I was there. That was the whole point. Uh, you know, he had some other words that I needed to learn from. Um, and really, to be completely honest, it was a yes, but here's some things you need to work on. But all that mattered was that yes being the final word that I was looking for. It was still a yes. Over the last several weeks, we have been studying the book of Amos, a hard book, a book full of conviction, a book full of bold words from a bold prophet sent by God to send a bold message, a message of calling the people of God to repentance, a message of letting the people of God know that because they had stepped away from their love of God, their love of people that God had called them to, that judgment was going to come. But as it is with the prophets in the Old Testament, if you've read through them, You know that in the end, there is always a last word of hope, or almost always a last word of hope. And so I am excited, more so than any sermon I have been in the book of Amos these past six weeks, I am excited about today because I know that as we get to finish this book, we get to concentrate on the goodness of God, his ability to forgive when it doesn't seem like he should, when it is certainly uh, certainly not worthy of being forgiven, he offers that forgiveness. And so with that idea in mind, we can concentrate on, the, on, on a beautiful truth this morning that God's last word is grace. Even in the Old Testament, even in a book of judgment, God's last word is grace. Amos chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. Before we get to God's last word of grace, we're going to look at the totality of the judgment that God pronounces through his prophet Amos. Again, this is the first four verses of, the, of, of Amos chapter 9, but before we read that, let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity to be here, living in a free country, the opportunity to come and worship you, sing praises to you. God, to give all glory and praise and honor to you for the good things that you have given us. And God, we also come thankful for your grace, thankful for your willingness to forgive, God, for your willingness to use us even, despite the fact that we do not deserve even a first glance from you. God, may you through your spirit convict us and encourage us this morning. God, may you through your word and spirit open our hearts and our minds to what it is you have for us to learn. God, may you transform us through the hearing of your word. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Amos chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Amos begins the conclusion of his prophecy like this. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. None of them shall flee away. None of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on on the top of Mount Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Again, this is the totality of the judgment of the Lord being pronounced with finality from the book of Amos and through his prophet. This is not just a word from the Lord. Amos sees this time a vision. He sees God standing beside the altar. This altar is likely the main altar at Bethel where the people of Israel worshipped, where the majority of all of their worship took place, worship that God had already said and that we focused on in weeks prior, that God had already said was far from him, far what it was supposed to be, that he actually said he detested and hated. Worship that was based on uh, the, the words of their mouth but not the quality of their heart. And at the heart of Israel's fall was turning their backs on this one true God turning their backs on their God and following other gods of their own making or of the making of their neighbors. It is natural then for judgment to begin here at the altar. God's judgment starts at God's house. And that's been true throughout the book of Amos. If you remember the way that Amos started, Amos started by pointing at Israel's neighbors and and pronouncing judgment upon them and, and worked a big circle around Israel until he fell whole holy on Israel completely and and pronounced more judgment on them three times as much at least than he did any of their neighbors, showing that he wasn't here to point at other people, but he was here to start with the house of God, here to start with the people of Israel. And he recapitulates that fact here at the end of this book. There is no escape from the judgment of God in in this sense. You hear the way that Amos describes it. Neither will they be able to descend to Sheol, hell, the underworld. It's not safe there, nor is it safe to ascend into heaven. 
Uh, there's a word called uh, merism that explains the figure of speech that explains what's going on here. By stating the extremes of, of something, you get everything in between. It's like fire and ice, right? You get all of the, the temperatures in between that. And so from heaven to hell, from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the sea, there is nowhere to escape the judgment of God. There is no place in existence safe from the judgment of God. Not even on the earth, not the forested high mountain of Carmel, nor the bottom of the ocean is safe from the Lord. Not even running away to the enemy will allow them to be removed or to be safe from the judgment coming. Uh, it's important that, that we, we, we hear that word in this prophecy where Amos says that even if they go into captivity before me, or God through Amos says that, even if they go into captivity before me, I will pursue them and strike them down. Showing that it's not the enemy, it's not the Assyrians that are coming uh, that is actually bringing the judgment upon Israel. It is always God himself behind the scenes acting. There is nowhere to flee, not from the judgment of man or not from the armies that are coming, but from the armies of the Lord and the judgment of God. That is what this is all about. God is the bringer of wrath. God is the decider of judgment. And any punishment that the Israelites will try to inflict on themselves by running away, that will not live up to the punishment that God himself will bring. This is not a delightful passage. This is, again, Amos's last word of judgment. Compare this dread in verses 1 through 4 with the security you might feel after reading Psalm 139, 7 through 10, a passage many of you know. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. A beautiful passage about the love of God and how anywhere we go, we cannot flee from his presence. And he is always there to hold and to bring security. But that's flipped on its head here in the book of Amos where the same thought is there. It's the same God from which we cannot flee. But in this case, it is his judgment that is looking for the people of God. God's love is ever present, but so is his justice. At the end of this word that we read in verse four, he says, I will fix my eyes upon them for evil, and not for good. You know, it's really good to be on God's good side. If you've ever known anybody really strong, it's good to be on their side, right? You ever been around somebody who maybe had a temper or, uh, you know, had, had, had some strength and, and, and maybe if you've ever played on football or basketball or anything else and, and they were just really good and, and not just really good, they were like physically good. Like you think of somebody playing basketball, they dominate under the boards and, and they'd be the kind of guy that would sneak in an elbow when nobody was seeing and you would think to yourself, I'm glad they're on my team right? I'm glad that, that he's on our side or that she's on our side because I wouldn't want to be on the other side of that. When we're in Psalm 139, we can say, this God who could find us wherever we go, I'm glad that we're on his side. I'm glad that, that when he finds us, he's going to bring love and mercy. But because of what Israel had done by placing themselves in opposition to God, it's not as God went looking for a fight, but they decided that they would step out of God's way, that they would pursue their own hearts, their own gods of their own making or the neighbors around them's making. Because of that, they put themselves at odd with God and they are finding that this God who can find you no matter where you go, who created the farthest reaches of the universe, universe and also the smallest parts of the atom that this God who can pursue us anywhere that we go, his judgment will not be escaped. It's good to be on God's side, but not so much the other way around. 
God's judgment is total. And there is no escape. There is no doubt about that from reading this book as well as the other books of prophecy. You can also turn to the last book of Bible and find the same thing. God is righteous and just. God would do nothing wrong. In the book of Amos, or in this time that Amos is talking about, God would have done nothing wrong if this were to be the end of the story. The people of Israel have sinned. Sinned so often and so desperately that even as we talked about a couple of weeks ago where God had sent them warning after warning, asking them to come back and their hearts were hardened and they continued to pursue their own passions. They had sinned so far beyond what they ever dreamed of when they set this whole thing up. That God's judgment would have been just. It would have been righteous. They did not deserve his blessing and his love. They disobeyed repeatedly, worshipped other gods, and acted in ways against their fellow humans that God described as reprehensible. God could have ended with judgment for the people of Israel, as well as he could with all people. But if you've read this story, you know that's not exactly how our God rolls. God's last word is not judgment. God's last word is grace. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. The last words of the oracle of Amos. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. God's last word is grace. In that day, God says through Amos, And that day, this will begin to happen. In the day after God's judgment is complete, at some point in the future. The verse, verse 10, it says that all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake us. Again, God's judgment is final. Yet here, after that judgment has been poured out, Amos, God through Amos, comes back and says, in that day, restoration will come. The booth of David will be restored is what my ESV says. Uh, The booth, that's a word for tent, like a tabernacle kind of idea, or a house, some sort of structure. In other words, it's saying that the house of David will be rebuilt. I went in the house of David, the people of David, the lineage of David will be rebuilt. There is a hint of even reuniting the kingdom within that phrase. Rebuilt as in the days of old, Amos says. Reunited or not, though. God's will, God will restore Israel to its glory. Their cities will be rebuilt. Their judgment that Amos has spent the entire book proclaiming, that is not their end. 
They will once again be powerful, possessing the eminent of of Edom, ruling over the people that had ruled over them, as well as all the nations, returning Israel to its place, to its mission, from which they were originally charged back in Genesis 12, when God said that they would be a blessing to all nations. God is restoring them to that place. He will bring them back to where he meant for them to be all along. And Israel will once again be fruitful. Listen to the agricultural metaphor that he uses. The plower will overtake the reaper. In other words, the harvest will be so plentiful that there will still be people in the field harvesting when it's time to plant again. They will have so much fruit, so much return that they, they're not even going to know what to do with it. Uh, and they're going to be so busy bringing in the harvest that they're not going to be ready to plant again. And it's the same with the grapes. The harvest of the grapes is going to be ready to, is going to be still in the field, still trying to, or still in the vineyard, bringing the harvest home. And the one who's supposed to sow the seed is going to say, hey, can you get the harvest out of the field so that I can start my job too? Uh, Grapes were a staple in that part of the world, and they're going to be so plentiful that as it says, the mountains will be dripping with wine. They won't know what to do with the level of blessing that is coming. It's like saying today to someone, that you won't even have figured out what to do with your last paycheck before you find the next one in the mailbox. Can I get an amen at that idea? You're going to have so much money you won't even know what to do with it. You're not even going to know what to do with God's blessing. I've heard that phrase a lot in my life. So much money that I wouldn't even know what to do with it. And my first thought was, I don't know what to do with it. I'll send it to Uncle Sam for that student loan that I still have to pay on. I know what to do with it. I got a car that I need to pay off. I know what to do with it. Three boys eat a lot of food. I know what to do with it. But to have the idea of having so much that you don't even know what to do with it, like I can't find places for it. I don't know about you, but me living in the middle class, living in this world, anytime I get money, I immediately know what to do with it. You know what I'm talking about? I immediately have a place for that money to go and to go to work, to to have such wealth and such prosperity where you don't even know how to respond to that. That is where the people of Israel are going to be restored. And best of all, none of that will ever be undone. God will plant them, Amos says, and they will never be uprooted. For God's people, judgment of God is temporal, but the grace of God is eternal. Now it is for us, those who are placed under the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When judgment comes, as it will, because as the author of Hebrews tells us, God disciplines the one that he loves. When judgment comes, it is there for our betterment, it is there for us to learn, but in the end, grace is coming. But in the end, glory is coming, and that will be eternal, whereas judgment will be temporal. You know, when I punish my boys, and I've, I've told you how terrible I am at that, how I'm soft-hearted and, and all of that, and I don't enjoy it. When I do that, I'm, I'm, I want to get it out of the way as quickly as possible. I know that's probably most parents in the room. I, I, I want to punish them, I want to teach them their lesson, and then I want to get back to spoiling them. Amen? I want to get back to laughing with them, to wrestling on the couch. I want to, I want to get back to doing what, what I love to do, which is to just be in joy with them and to enjoy one another. You know, and it seems like God has, has poured out his judgment on the people. 
And, and he's going to do that on this side of heaven, is that when, when peoples, when, when nations, when the church, when, when we cross God, when we go the opposite direction, judgment is coming and it is complete and there is no way to escape it. But once that judgment has been poured out, God is going to get back to what he originally created us for, which is to enjoy him and to enjoy one another and for him to enjoy us enjoying him. He's going to get back to this loving relationship that he created us for in the first place. When I punish my boys, I want to get it out of the way as soon as possible so I can go back to why we exist in the first place. This has to be why, according to another prophet by the name of Isaiah, who says that God was pleased to crush Jesus in Isaiah 53.10. It had to be because God knew that once he poured his wrath out on even his son, his one and only son, that once he poured it out, once he emptied all the, the wrath that we had earned in all of our existence, past, present, and future, once God poured all of that out on Jesus, he knew that the day was coming when we could be forgiven and we could be given that ministry of reconciliation, both to ourselves and to the rest of the world and God could dwell with us both abundantly here on earth and eternally in heaven. God knew that if he poured his wrath out that he could enjoy, we could enjoy his glory. God's judgment is temporal. His grace is eternal. It will never end. There is no way to exhaust it. And this is the good news. Even in the Old Testament, even in the book of the prophet Amos, even in one of the harshest books in all of the Bible, this is the good news. God's last word is grace. For the nations, God's last word is grace. God will judge nations, peoples, institutions when they fall away from his will and step outside of his plan and his judgment will be swift and will be complete. But this is the good news. That God will restore those who trust in him every single time. And so for the church of Jesus Christ in America today, that means that if we repent of losing our way and we return to Christ and his mission to make disciples, his mission to be a witness to all that he has done, what we have seen and heard to the uttermost parts of the world, his mission to love God and to love people, his mission to care for the orphan and the widow in their distress, his mission to care for the least of these, even when we don't know who they really are, that it's actually Jesus at work in them, his mission to love other people and to love him above all. If we go back to that, repent of the way that we have turned to the ways of Babylon, to the ways of the world, seeking to be at ease in Babylon like we talked about last week. If we repent of that and we return to him, God will restore us, allowing us to be what we all, I think, long to be in the heart of every American Christian, that city on a hill, that light that cannot be hidden, that place that proclaims to all of the world the grace and love of Jesus Christ, the way that many of you remember us being, where we as the Southern Baptist Convention in the world were the largest sending mission organization in the entire world to get back to our original call to be that city on a hill if we repent and return, God will restore us to that every single time. God's last word is grace for you. God will discipline he will allow you to go through difficult seasons, perhaps sometimes at his own hands, as a way of showing you that you have fallen out of step and you're pursuing the wrong path. 
A verse I alluded to earlier, Hebrews 12, 6, says that God disciplines the one that he loves. But if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, seeking God's face and forgiveness, God will forgive those who ask him every single time. God has poured out his wrath on Jesus once and for all so that you don't have to bear it if you will simply place yourself underneath Jesus and underneath his sacrifice that bears all the weight for us. God's love never fails. God's last word is grace. The last line of the book, I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them says the Lord, your God. Really looking at this word and looking at this word of hope, where God, after so much judgment, comes back and says, I'm going to restore. Better than it was. Better than you could imagine. And this judgment that I'm doing, that's going to be undone because I'm bringing restoration. But this future glory that is coming, that will never be undone. I'm going to plant them, again, using an agricultural metaphor. Amos loved those. I'm going to plant them so deeply, so permanently, that no one will ever uproot them. It's never going to be undone. And then Amos ends it with that simple phrase, says the Lord, your God. Go back and look when you get a chance at the book of Amos. And look at the declarations of the Lord. Almost always, Amos says, you know, this and this and this and this is going to happen, declares the Lord, says the Lord. But here in this final oracle, here in this final word, one of restoration, Amos is quick to remind who this Lord is. I'm going to replant them. I'm going to never allow them to be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord, who your God, reminding them that he is for them in the end. If they will be on his side, he is for them in the end. So what does this mean for you today? What is our response to this word from Amos? What is our response to this entire book since we're finishing it out? First, I think it's that if you don't have a relationship with the Lord, it's time. Repent and be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. You see that being on the opposite side, it's not that God wants to punish. It's not that he wants to pour out his wrath. He has provided a way, the only way to salvation. And if we choose to spurn that way, it only makes sense that judgment would come our direction It's time for you to repent and to ask for mercy from that judgment, to ask him to save you from that day that will come for all of us. Repent and be saved. And for those of you who have a relationship with the Lord, repent and be restored. Some of us need to do. Some of us need to search our hearts in ways that we have turned from the Lord, ways that we have turned other directions to other gods. It might not look like the gods that Amos was talking about that were made of material, but it might be gods that are behind like systems at work in our world, gods like greed and materialism, gods like all of the things that we pursue in this world today. If your heart has turned that direction or if you had have been involved in commitment committing horrible acts against other people and not seeing the hurting and the distressed in your midst like the people of Israel that Amos had been talking to. If you are in that position and you need to turn your heart back towards God and back towards the people that God created, you can repent and be restored. 
and ultimately to praise the God of our salvation. To be honest, perhaps the best way to respond to the book of Amos is on our knees. Realizing how little we have without our Lord, which is absolutely nothing. I would imagine even prostrate on the ground might be the way to do it. Where if you read this book from start to finish, I believe the heart of a believer would say, Oh God, I am so unworthy. We would echo Isaiah in chapter 6. Woe is me, God, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm among a people of unclean lips. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That might be our response. And then when God gives mercy that none of us deserve, to rejoice in the God of our salvation. See, this is why, even though it's hard, and it has been, and trust me, like I've already told you, there were several times throughout this series that I thought, good job, buddy, picking Amos to preach an entire five weeks. Yeah, that's it's real fun. Everybody's going to really enjoy that word of justice because everybody loves justice so much. No matter how many times I told myself that, I'm reminded of the beauty of God's word, even when it's hard. And I'm reminded that even in a word of judgment, God's love is ever present. And his mercy is never failing. But all Israel would have had to do throughout that entire time is turn their heart back. And they failed over and over again. But even though they failed, God restored. God sent his son. God rebuilt their cities. And God will again rebuild and rebuild and rebuild and restore and restore for those who trust in him and who turn back to him. May our response to a book like Amos not be one of guilt where we go and hide, but may it be one of conviction where we respond in humility. God, I don't deserve you. Have mercy on me. Clean the dark places of my heart and restore me to where you would have me be. Lead me back to your calling, back to your first love, to our first love. So again, whether you are a believer or not this morning, the call is very similar. Seek the mercy of God today. Return to him. If you have never believed, repent and be saved today. I could talk with you about what that looks like in your life. If you have any questions, I can do my best to answer them during our time of invitation or after the service, I'll be down here. For those of you who do have a relationship with the Lord, look inwardly. What needs to be turned back to him, back to his people, repent and be restored. And in the end, basking in the grace of and the glory of God, and the beauty of his forgiveness that follows our repentance every single time. May you rejoice in this God who could smite us in an instant, but gives us glory for eternity. May that be our response, and may that be our heart's cry. 
You need to pray about salvation, about turning back to the Lord. I'm down here to do that with you this morning. Let's stand together. The altar is open if you would like to pray there. You're always invited to pray right where you're at, to have this time to dwell with the Holy Spirit, to allow God to speak to you through his Spirit and to respond in whatever way you desire. Let's pray together. The band is, or not the band. You, you guys are a band, right? Uh, Bill and Lynn are going to lead us to the song of invitation and you move in whatever way God is calling. Father, your mercy is beyond my ability to communicate. Something that I can never even fully understand. God, thank you for being a God who despite knowing everything that I've ever done, still chooses to extend himself to me. God, if there is anyone here today who does not know you and follow you as Savior, God, would you, through your spirit, stir in their heart and call them toward you? And Lord, those of us who do know you and follow you, God, would you stir in our heart as well to convict us, to lay open the parts of our heart that need to be restored and turned back to you and your ways. And God, as we open that up to you and as we repent together, God, we thank you for your mercy. God, we thank you for your forgiveness. And God, we thank you once today, knowing that it will last forever and ever and ever. God, all praise and glory and honor be to you, the giver of mercy that is eternal. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.